It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Lots to talk about, including breaking news. Seven, count them, seven zero days in Microsoft Exchange server. And we'll talk about a sneaky new thing that some websites are using to track you, even if you have tracking protection turned on. We'll tell you how to avoid it. CNAME collusion coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 808. Recorded Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. CNAME collusion. Security Now is brought to you by Privacy.com. Privacy lets you buy things online using virtual cards instead of having to use your real ones, protecting your financial identity on the Internet. Right now, new customers will automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase when you go to Privacy.com slash Security Now to sign up. And by Melissa. Like expired milk, 30% of your customers' data goes bad every year and that's money down the drain visit melissa's developer portal for free access to data quality apis demos and code samples freshen up your sour data today with 1000 records clean free at melissa.com slash twit and by it pro tv expand your skills or launch yourself into a career with it visit itpro.tv slash security now for an additional 30 percent off all consumer subscriptions for the lifetime of your active subscription use the code sn30 at checkout it's time for security now the show we cover your security and privacy and well-being online with this cat right here mr james James. <laughs> Sorry to calling you James Tiberius Gibson, but no. I, I knew where you were going. Yeah. With that. Yep. Steve, Steve Gibson, <laughs> the GRC Corp. He has it was danced. The Vulcan, the Vulcan wave. That's what Vulcan did it. Vulcan hand sign. That's what uh, got you tripped That's up. That's what did it. Yep. I don't know so, what Mr. Spock's middle name is. I don't even know what his first name is, but uh, I do know James Tiberius Kirk. Actually, we're having fun. We are rewatching Fringe, which Laurie oh, never saw. Yeah. Yeah. And of course he he is uh Bell uh and at the end of the first season he comes out of the shadows and of course I recognized Shatner. his voice. You knew immediately, yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> uh and then she's like, "Oh." So, anyway, nice. we're having fun with that. Um <laughs> uh I this is this is going to be one of those episodes, Leo. Uh um this is this is important. Uh, not no fooling around this time. Uh, there's something which has come to light, which is a form of escalation of the browser tracking fight, which is very disturbing because of what the tracking companies are asking websites to do, oh, thus boy. the collusion part of this. There is collusion involved. And the consequences of what's been done in order to avoid those who wish not to be tracked, to, to circumvent anti-tracking, um, is deeply disturbing. So... Uh, uh, there, there was like more news, but 
I just I wanted to be able to spend enough time on this because the, I mean we we do have news, but uh, as I looked into this, I just thought, okay, you know, and I say this in the show notes later because I just wrote this about ten minutes ago. Um, we we can't fault people when third party cookies when cookies began being abused by third parties even though that was never their design because people didn't know, you know, I mean, random users, they, they didn't see the tracking going on. The technologists knew and we did nothing. And that we're here again, we're at something that is going on that no one is seeing that by the end of this podcast, every one of our, of the podcast listeners is going to understand. Oy. And something, some we we can't, we just can't do nothing again. Anyway, uh, the the topic, the name of the podcast is C Name Collusion. Uh, I was going to go with the C Name Conspiracy, but that word's been a little overused lately, and so I thought eh, collusion sounds better, and it's actually more accurate. Um, but first, we're going to discuss a welcome change. Coming soon to a Chrome browser, probably near you, uh, and a welcome evolution in last week's just released Firefox 86, which actually 86 is something. Uh, we're going to look at questions surrounding the source of the original intrusion into SolarWinds servers, which there's some controversy about. The old CFO and the new CFO have <laughs> differing opinions about how this thing crawled in in the first place. Um, also, we're going to look at a new Severity 10 vulnerability affecting Rockwell Automation PLC controllers. Uh, CISA has warned, is warning the world about this. Uh, we'll touch on VMware's current dilemma with the exploitation of their vCenter management system as a consequence of a patch they just released, which was instantly reversed and for which there are, at the time of the last time I checked, six public exploits, which immediately started getting used. I also want to share, because I think our, our listeners will find it really interesting. I, I certainly did. Um, a recent code debugging experience I had uh, with a, that system that I mentioned last week that where it was the only system that I had that was still causing me trouble. And I, I now know why. And, oh, is it weird. Uh, and then, as I said, we're going to conclude with some information about something that's been going on quietly, out of sight and under the covers which must be made as widely public among web technologists as possible. And so we're going to do our part on this podcast. As always, that sounds interesting. I will be staying oh. tuned. Not like I can go anywhere, but uh, I'll be listening with interest. Just Not don't fall off your ball, Leo. That's <laughs> yes, what I might. I Depends on how shocking the C-name collusion is. Our show today brought to you by something I know uh, you like the idea of a lot, privacy.com. This is the company that gives you credit cards that can only be used once, disposable credit cards, or 
credit cards that lock to the merchant. So they can be used more than once, but only by the same company. I only use privacy.com cards uh, on when I buy online. That's that's it. With Amazon, even though I trust them, but but, but with any merchant, because it, it makes it super easy to manage my financial life. And, you know, and I use two-factor with privacy. Privacy ties these cards to your bank account. They're not charge cards. I want to be clear about that. It's either charged to it. It's like a debit card. So you could tie it to your debit card or to your bank card. But it does mask that information. So you never have to worry about giving it out to strangers, which pretty much everybody online is. Um, I love the merchant card because, you know, when I, for instance... I, uh, I I just bought Lisa flowers because it was Valentine's Day. And I thought, well, if I'm going to buy flowers, do it online. But I'm not using a real credit card. I'm using the privacy card. Now, that card is tied to that flower shop. And if I ever want to buy car- flowers again, with any luck, for, it'll be before next Valentine's Day, uh, I just use that card. Only they can use it. If somehow they get breached or they leak it or they have a malicious employee who tries to use it, It'll be declined, and I'll get a notification about the decline, so I'll know immediately. I use it for subscriptions online all the time because, you know, a lot of times you subscribe to something, an app or a periodical or or whatever, and <clears throat> it's really hard to cancel it. If you notice that, you go to the website and you look, where's the cancel part? Well, I don't have to worry about that because when I use a privacy card to subscribe, I could pause that card at any time or cancel it. And that's it. I'm done. Subscription over. I love that. You could set a limit per charge, per month, per year. You make sure you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to a, another service without your consent. By setting that spending limit, they just they can't overcharge you. And I love it. You know, I wish I'd done this. I signed up for a gym about five years ago, canceled the membership, and they kept charging me. I didn't notice uh, for training sessions for for like six months, I called the credit card company, but they said, well, we can only refund three of those six months. If I'd used a privacy card, it would have been easy to stop the card. Just stop it. Pause your privacy card. You won't have to jump through difficult customer service hoops or malicious or misrepresenting customer service hoops. They just block the charges and they notify you for any reason if it's declined, if it's over the allotted amount, if it's a different person, uh, or if it's a disposable card being used a second time. You always stay within your budget. You always stay in the know. There's a Chrome extension, a Firefox extension, which will fill out the forms immediately. It's good for sharing. I set up a privacy uh, card for my mom. Actually, I set up several because I want to buy mom dinner. She's in Rhode Island. She's kind of tired of cooking. She cooked for me her whole life. So I thought, well, let me buy you dinner. So I set up a, an account for her with the various food delivery organizations using a privacy card. So, And the way I shared it to – actually, I didn't have to set it up. I shared it with her. Not not emailing, not texting, but using privacy. It handles uh, – you, you don't have to copy or paste. There's no screenshot. They don't need an account with privacy. She doesn't have a privacy account. I click the share button with the card and then enter her email address and privacy handles the rest. It's really a great way to do that. And the account summaries are fantastic. You can tell privacy – not to have information about the, what the charge is for in your bank account or you and then use privacy's own register or you can have it I actually have it show up in the bank account so then I know where the charge went when you do the charge you can give them any uh, address or zip code because 
privacy doesn't care. So that's a great way to keep your privacy. It's also very easy to track your spending right on the privacy.com homepage. They've just added a summary page, which is really nice. You can filter by date, see how much you've spent in a month. Really good for budgeting. No guessing. I just, I love this in every respect. And by the way, now with the cards, you can tag, this is something else new. You can create custom tags so you can sort your cards. You can have subscriptions or magazines, that kind of thing. And under views, sees all, see all the cards that are with that tag. Protect your financial identity online. Protect your privacy. Make it easy to get out of subscriptions. I just think this is the best thing ever. One-time use or merchant-locked cards, you set the limit. Protect your financial identity online with virtual cards from privacy.com. Go to privacy.com slash security now to get started. Sign up for a new account and you'll automatically get $5 to spend in your first purchase just because you went to that special address. And, of course, that helps us. That way they know you saw it here. Privacy.com slash security now. It's all I use online. It's just a really great idea. Uh, used to be, you know, some credit cards would do this. Nobody does it anymore. Privacy does. Thank you, privacy. All right, Steve. On we go. What's behind that? Behind the the pulling it's, that service away? Uh, yeah, that's interesting because Discover used to do it. American Express used to do it, and I think they all stopped. Such a such an obvious win for the consumer, but you know, you know I guess they didn't have to, and it was I probably you did. Merchants complained because you know people would stop payment and stuff. Or they would yeah. destroy the card. And I bet you the merchants said, no, 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 we want all that information. Yeah. Right? So uh, our picture of the week is just sort of a fun one. Uh, I titled it, Not Exactly Confidence-Inspiring. <laughs> and this, 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 is sh- this is showing an ATM, you know, a contemporary-looking ATM. Uh, and on the screen, it shows uh, apparently the the processor has crashed and rebooted and it shows microsoft windows nt workstation and, and i went down i squinted to the screen and i thought oh, well at least it's workstation 4.0 so you know that's that's good that's uh, not 3.15 or 3, 3.51 or whatever it used to be but anyway yes if your atm is uh running on windows nt that, I mean, that doesn't mean that it's insecure because, of course, new viruses won't infect Windows NT. Uh, but it does sort of suggest that it isn't receiving any regular maintenance <laughs> and love and care. That maybe the 300 baud modem, which it's using <laughs> to to connect to the uh, rest of the world, is re- the reason why your transactions are running a little slowly. I used to be you'd hear that. You'd hear the... It's not. It's also a little concerning that we're seeing the boot screen on the ATM. I don't. That's think that's true. a good sign either. It, yeah. yeah. That, that that probably means that the ten megabyte hard drive <laughs> is try is retrying, <laughs> or was unable to get off the ground, or you know, Lord knows. Maybe the floppy that it's running inside, you know, is having read errors. Oof. Um. So, I am delighted to announce. That the forthcoming Chrome version 90, which is slated for release around mid-April, will finally assume that any non-specific, or as Google terms it, schemeless URL, which is entered into its Omnibox, which is what they call, you know, the URL field, will be assumed 
HTTPS before falling back to HTTP. As our listeners know, I've mentioned often that it seems well past time for our browsers to assume HTTPS rather than HTTP. They don't do that yet. Uh, but it appears that's finally going to happen. This will likely influence certainly all other Chromium-based browsers, and we can expect that probably Firefox and Safari will follow suit. I think it's I think it's 80, I saw the figure recently, actually, when I was researching this, 80-some, uh, oh, maybe it's in here. Uh, so last Wednesday, Google's Emily Stark tweeted, if you're running Chrome Canary dev or beta, so that's, you know, not the one we get yet or, or that the rest of us have yet, and you want some more HTTPS in your life, which, you know, okay, you, you can't avoid having it in your life. Anyway, she said, go to Chrome colon slash slash flags and search for Omnibox hyphen default hyphen typed hyphen. Actually, all you have to do is Omnibox hyphen and you could type a D for default. There, I, I did it. There aren't any other collisions in the search. So anyway, it's Omnibox default typed navigations to HTTPS. Uh, which allows you to enable Chrome first trying HTTPS rather than HTTP by default. Um, anyway, and then the next day she followed up tweeting, currently the plan is to run as an experiment for a small percentage of users in Chrome 89. Okay, so that will be the next one we get, which probably is sometime soon, later this month. Um, and then we'll launch fully, assuming presumably that nothing blows up from their small percentage of user test in 89. It'll be on in Chrome 90. So anyway, yeah, the current public release is 88. Um, and I checked 88 doesn't yet have anything like that option. 89 will. So a test percentage of 89 users will get that. The rest of us, if we're curious, and I, I will, when 89 comes out, we'll turn it on because it's clear that, you know, when you just type grc.com, you should go to https colon slash slash grc.com. You know, I have long had code that, that redirects any HTTP person coming in immediately to HTTPS. Um, Well-behaved sites do that. But again, like HTTP should die eventually. You know, everybody, certainly the browsers are doing everything they can to, get, to kill it off. So, yeah, this is just, you know, it makes sense that this would eventually happen. Chrome is leading the way. All, you know, Edge and Brave and everybody else, Vivaldi, all the other Chromium-based browsers will probably do the same thing. And I imagine then Firefox and Safari will follow. Is that uh, what – so Brave does HTTPS everywhere. I think it has it built in. Is that the same okay. thing? Yeah, kind of. It's so, – so that says um, it's an, typically an add-on on current browsers. Yeah, it's a Chrome extension which, I think, yeah. Yes, which does, which does transmute the non-specific URL into HTTPS. 
which so is, yeah, so yes, basically that HTTPS everywhere that you know our listeners know has been around for a couple of years now. It's finally getting built in. So so the but but so if you don't specify, Chrome will go HTTPS first. If that doesn't answer, if there's nobody home there, then it'll go huh and try HTTP. And of course, then you're, all kinds of other alarms and bells are going to go off because Chrome doesn't want to talk to anybody over HTTP. It's like you get all kinds of scary, like, oh, wait a minute, you know, uh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think it was 83% of all websites wow. are now that's great. HTTPS. And it that's, is really you great. You can thank Chrome for that because Google really pushed yes. this, right? They said yeah. you'll rank well, higher in the search. Chrome it's better. and Let's Encrypt. Let's Encrypt was arguably it made it easy. Yeah, the well, it made it free. That was the big deal, right? You know, all the old grumbly Linux farts uh, <laughs> were wow, oh, <laughs> three hundred dollars That is not the way the internet was meant to be. It's supposed to be free. Well, it is pricey. I have to As or in was beer pricey. or something. Yeah. What is it? Beer free? I don't know. if Beer is free. No, but, it's but, not. It's liberated. Liberated. Yes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, because Brave does have that. So Brave has done that for a while, in fact, for as long as I can remember. This well, they may have been, you know, may, maybe Chrome is looking at that going, huh, Yeah, that, that works better than we thought. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so that's the first bit of good news on the browser front. The second is that you know, apparently my wish list is getting some long overdue attention this week. Mozilla just announced that with their recently released Fox 86, the long-running abuse of third-party cookies would finally be 86 Um, Of course, as I've long lamented, and we'll be talking about this toward the end, the use of third-party off-site cookies for tracking was never part of the plan. Netscape invented first-party cookies in order to implement a simple session maintenance mechanism, which for the first time back then, enable and still today, enables the concept of a user logging into a website and then being known as they moved about. Essentially, it amounted to them being tracked as they moved about that one site, but being a first-party cookie, it only worked for that one site. What was never intended was that third-party advertisers or, or dark and unseen analytics providers or Google Analytics would insinuate themselves pervasively throughout the web and employ their own cookies for tagging and tracking the activities of individual users. But as we know, what can be done will be done, and tracking is what resulted. So here's what have they've done. With the release of Firefox 86, that just ended. I mean, like, really. At the top of their posting titled Total Cookie Protection, Mozilla wrote, Today we are pleased to announce Total Cookie Protection, a major privacy advance in Firefox built into ETP strict mode. Total Cookie Protection confines cookies to the site where they were created, which prevents tracking companies from using these cookies to track your browsing from site to site. Okay, so in other words, third-party cookies are not blocked, but they are stovepiped. So 
assuming, for example, that all third-party cookies were in, or that third-party cookies were enabled at all in your browser, which is the case typically, any third-party entity may still give the user's browser its cookie, like an advertiser or like Google Analytics or like, you know, anyone providing content to the to your page when you visit a specific site. They're welcome to give your browser its cookie. Um, but now, I mean, like Firefox right now, I have 86 and you get it. If you go to about Firefox, you'll probably see that you have 85 and then it'll offer, although I did get an update yesterday without asking. But now Firefox will associate the third party cookie it received with the website where the user was when that cookie was received. The two will be paired. So if the user returns to the same site, that third-party cookie will be returned to the third-party site. So it's not breaking third-party cookies. But if the user visits a different site with, con with content, an advertisement or tracking code from that same third-party site, because the user is visiting a different website, there will be no third-party cookie associated with the visited site. So cross-site tracking is defeated. Now, if we wanted to use some modern highfalutin language to describe this, we would say that Mozilla has segmented their browser cookie namespace, creating individual cookie namespaces for each website. So I think this is it. I mean, this is... This is a wonderful compromise between allowing and refusing all third-party cookies just as a binary choice. With this solution, third-party cookies are still allowed. Nobody can say, oh, you turned off third-party cookies. You're bad. No, they're on. But you don't get that same third-party cookie when you go somewhere else that has that same third-party site. You're at a different location, so it's treated as a new third-party cookie, not cross-associated among websites. So this is just great. Um, you know, we know that the pressure to track is significant, even though when it really does work, it's frequently reported as being a bit unnerving. You know, when, like when some recent activity that you've had somewhere like you're, you know, in Amazon searching for something, you know, then it, that turns up in an ad somewhere else a few minutes later. That freaks people out. It's like, wait a minute. I mean, that's like, notice that when people actually experience being tracked, they're not happy. They're like, wait. But most of the time, you don't experience it. And I'm not convinced it even actually provides any substantial, like, worthwhile revenue. But it sure is a big business. So anyway, big props to Mozilla for adding this welcome and long overdue feature to Firefox. Okay. Uh, solar winds. <laughs> it's going to be a while the before we really get through on this giving. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as we know, post 
intrusion forensics is always difficult. You know, like, you know, the famous hacking 101 is, well, once you break in, you delete the log files of your break in and thus you eliminate some of the tracks. And I don't know. So that's a sort of sort of a classic example. But, yeah, you can kind of do that. Um, and we've talked about how much the 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 designers of this of the intrusion, how how much effort they went to 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 deliberately thwart post intrusion forensics from figuring out where they came from, like not to cup to decouple the 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 intrusion from solar winds into other systems to prevent it being being, being tracked back to solar winds. So <laughs> the previous solar winds CEO, Kevin Thompson, says that it may this was in front of a the the Senate or the the House, I guess it was a, a representative's uh oh yeah, the US House of Representatives Oversight and Homeland Security Committee. He said it may have all started when an intern, right? You know, blame it on an intern. <laughs> They're gone. When an intern set an important password to <clears throat> SolarWinds123. Not, unfortunately, not monkey, but still, you know, it was SolarWinds password set to SolarWinds123. And then adding insult to in injury, the intern posted it on GitHub. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh. Kevin Thompson, he told a, as I said, a joint U.S. House of Representatives Oversight and Homeland Security Committee hearing that the password was, quote, a mistake that an intern made. They violated our password policies and they posted that password on their own private GitHub account. As soon as it was identified and brought to the attention of my security team, they took that down, unquote. Okay, now, as soon as, you know, that's, you know, when you learn to speak that way, you get the C of the CEO uh, in front of your designation. Kevin's uh, responsible as possible sounding testimony was contradicted by SolarWinds' current CEO, uh, Sudhakar Ramakrishna, who confessed that the password SolarWinds123 was in use by 2017. The researcher uh, uh, Vinoth Kumar who discovered the leaked password to one of SolarWinds file servers had earlier stated that SolarWinds did not change the password until November of 2019, after he had discovered it on the Internet and reported it. So about two years, that password, SolarWinds123, was in use. Um <sighs> Now, the insecure password. <laughs> yeah. You have to wonder, uh, at the, all the employees who used it who didn't think twice. Yes, exactly. Everybody, exactly. In two years, that's how they logged on to that server. Oh, thank goodness. It's this so is so easy, easy to, to remember. remember. Yes. Don't have to look it up. It's not a bunch of gibberish. 
It's, you know, I can just say it over the phone. How nice. The insecure password is one of three possible avenues of attack, which SolarWinds has been investigating as it tries to determine how it was first compromised by the hackers. The two other theories are brute force guessing of company passwords, you know, so-called credential stuffing, as we call it now, as well as the possibility the hackers could have entered via compromised third-party software. That's right. Let's blame it on, blame it on somebody else. If not the intern that we had a couple of years ago, whose password was allowed to sit there for several years, then some other third-party software. And, of course, they're the third-party software that <laughs> really did the damage. In other words, they don't know for sure. And since post-intrusion forensics is difficult, we might never be certain. But publicly posting a private password on GitHub is certainly not the way to keep it a secret. Okay, speaking of things that you really wish you could keep secret but you can't, um, Rockwell Automation has a CVE 2021 number 22681. It is a 10 out of 10 critical assigned by CISA. The security of nearly all of Rockwell Automation's PLCs, which are programmable logic controllers, are affected by the use of a single globally shared static encryption key. <laughs> oh, yes. Every one of the – now, I wrote hundreds of thousands. It's probably millions. I mean, these things are everywhere. I'll explain what PLCs are. But – they're all protected, in air quotes, by the same single key. So, of course, this just might as well not be one. So a programmable logic controller fills an important gap within any process control system or an important need. For example, you might be on an oil rig where the pressure of a feeder line, and I don't even know what that is, but it sounds good, a feeder line must be maintained within a range. But the pressure might need to be taken at several different places and averaged. And there might be multiple upstream sources of pressure controlled by valves with actuators. So in a sense, it's a small closed system having a handful of inputs and outputs. And once its function is defined, it can and should just be left alone to work. You just want that feeder line pressure maintained. And if you got to open some valves using actuators to maintain the pressure, then that's good. And you want to average the pressure in a few locations. So, you know, not a, not a big complex job, but it's a job that needs to get done. So how do you build the control system for that? Once upon a time, before computers, a custom circuit would have been created and some tech would have built it from scratch. Today, you go over to Rockwell Automation's website and pick the PLC, the Programmable Logic Controller, that's just big enough to, because there's a whole bunch of them of different sizes, you want the one that's just big enough 
to handle the number and types of inputs and outputs that you need. Then, an engineer who's been trained up uses Rockwell's software, which is called Studio 5000 Logics Designer, to program the little computer that resides inside that industrial oil rig tough little box. And you hook it up and you, you know, that, that little world will now take care of itself. So a PLC does a limited set of very specific things. Once upon a time, as I said, it might have been done with discrete circuitry, you know, like a bunch of clacking relays all wired together to implement the sequencing logic required to route vials of newly synthesized vaccine around their carousel, counting them as they pass, to, and then to flip routing gates open and closed at the exact time needed to fill the waiting containers. Another typical job for a PLC. But today, all of that is handled, not with a bunch of clacking relays, but by an unseen Rockwell Automation PLC. It's programmed once, and it effectively becomes part of the overall machine. In any industrial setting where things are moving, spinning, whirring, valves are opening and closing, and stuff's happening, there are tasks that don't require a general-purpose computer. And God knows you sure don't want Windows anywhere near the, the control loop of systems like that. You know, it'll decide it's time to update and, you know, your vaccine vials will go flying all over the place. So, you know, yes, Windows hosts Rockwell's Studio 5000 Logics Designer app, which is used to, in a cool way, to interactively design the logic that will be programmed into this. But once that PLC device is programmed, it's blessedly off on its own. Leave it alone. It'll just get the job done. So everything would be great with these workaday PLCs. But apparently, <laughs> some bozo somewhere decided that needing to go down to the shop floor to tweak the controller of the machine that's squeezing bottle caps onto Coke bottles was too much to ask. So let's put it on the network. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, these perfect little happy worker controllers have received IP addresses. Stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And yes, as I mentioned above, not only do they have IP addresses, often with public presences on the internet, again, things that are just supposed to get their job done, just leave them alone. They're just, they're working. But they are all being protected by the same now well-known cryptographic key. Last Thursday, the US CISA warned of a critical vulnerability, giving it a 10 out of 10, which is a hard score to earn, that 10. You know, you can get to 9.8 without, without trying that hard. But whoa, getting a 10, it's like the Olympics. So that allows hackers to remotely connect to Logic's controllers and from there alter their configuration or applicable code. 
CISA stated that the vulnerability requires a low skill level for exploitation. Quoting them, they said, the vulnerability tracked as CVE 2021-22681 is the result of the Studio 5000 Logics Designer software making it possible for hackers to extract a secret encryption key. And they, they didn't put secret in quotes, but, you know, uh, they said this semi-secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we wanted it to be secret. So could you please let, let's keep it a secret, everybody? Let's agree. Um, this key is hard-coded into both Logic's PLC controllers and engineering stations and verifies communication between the two devices. A hacker, they're writing, who obtained the key could then mimic an engineering workstation and manipulate PLC code or configurations that directly impact a manufacturing process. Uh, it's just, you know, why must we put everything on the internet, Leo? We just, you know. Because it's there, it's Steve. Because it's there. But, you know, people's garage doors <laughs> are on the internet. And I mean, let's, if it's, if it moves, hook it up. Yeah. <laughs> Give yeah. it an IP address. That's it. it oh, my, my, my garage door is on the internet. Is that a bad thing? I really didn't mean to pick on you, Leo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It makes it easy to open it from anywhere. On the other hand, I should have said, of course your garage door is <laughs> on the it internet. Is. We know your front door is on the internet. No, no, your no. Well, it is. The pick the camera. camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Right. Yeah, I know. Right. You're right. Okay, I have to take a drink of water. <sighs> okay. Let's tell our listeners why they're so lucky to be listening to this. Oh, it's okay, Steve. My my front door is on the internet. You, it's okay. Oh. <sighs> Our show today brought to you by Melissa. Happened to me again just the other day. I was entering my address on a website. I started with just the street number. It filled it in. Fill, filled the whole thing in. That's that's the Melissa API. Melissa is the address experts, but it's not just addresses. You know that uh, your customer records, the, the data that you get, whether the customers fill it in or the customer service rep fills it in, um, it starts often, it starts with errors, and then it only gets worse from there. On average, 30% of customer data goes bad every year. Customers move, they change numbers, they change emails. And that means you're not going to reach them. You're not, when you send them the bill or the brochure, it's not going to get there. You send them a catalog, they might get two. I say that because I used to get, actually, I think it was three giant restoration hardware catalogs that were this thick, all the same name and address. And it's like, guys, you need Melissa to dedupe it. Melissa, make sure your data is accurate, current, unduplicated. So you reach the right customers. They, they've been doing this for 35 years now. You don't want to throw money down the drain or irritate your customers with bad data. You can verify addresses, emails, phone numbers, and names in real time with Melissa their global address verification service works in 240-plus countries and territories. And, and if you use the SaaS product or the API, it could do it at the point of entry. So when I typed my street number and I transposed the numbers, it's fixed. It's fixed. I do that a lot for some reason. I don't know why. And that means, you know, I hope it's fixed because otherwise I'm not going to get that thing. 
Uh, you can, if you want, they can add cust- public customer demographic information uh, to the record, like property and mortgage data, marital status, social media handles. Melissa's flexible deployment options offer a variety of ways to do this. Of course, there's a secure FTP server, so you can upload a customer list like a Christmas card list that we've done that, process it, get it back all clean and neat and tidy, uh, which actually is a really good thing on your Christmas card list. Uh, But they also have on-prem solutions, web services, software as a service, and a a great API. Choose the way that meets your business needs best. And by the way, never worry about privacy or security. Of course not. Melissa continually undergoes independent security audits because they're committed to data security, privacy. And of course, many of us have compliance requirements and they're committed to that too. They implement strong controls and safeguards when processing your data. They're SOC2 compliant, HIPAA compliant, GDPR compliant. Your privacy is guaranteed. That's probably why over 10,000 businesses trust the address experts at Melissa and why you should, too. Go to melissa.com slash twit. Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox anytime. In fact, you'll get started with 1,000 records clean for free so you can see exactly how well it works. melissa.com slash twit. And by the way, right now they're supporting qualifying communities and essential workers by... uh, Offering six months of free service by applying online at the website, melissa.com slash twit. They're good people, too. I really like them. Uh, Canadians. Of course, you got to love them. (laughs) Melissa.com slash twit. Fresh data is easy as one, two, three with the address experts. Melissa.com slash twit. We thank them so much for making security now possible. Thank you for using that address. That lets them know you hear it. Heard it here. Uh, on we go with the show, Mr. Gee. Okay, so VMware's got some problems. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's not their fault. They did things responsibly. You know, as we know, there are companies that get notified of a problem and they don't fix it for a long time. And they force the people who notified them to release the information for the benefit of the world if since the company refuses to do anything until apparently made to do so. That didn't happen here. Um, what happened was a very bad flaw was found in the uh, <laughs> the entire population of VMware's vCenter servers. Uh, VMware could do nothing but patch it, right? Like here, uh, everybody update your VMware vCenter systems. Unfortunately... They're a big target, and the bad guys got right on this. Um, As a consequence, hackers are currently mass scanning the Internet in search of VMware servers that have not yet patched this newly disclosed code execution, remote code execution vulnerability, which carries a severity rating of... 9.8 9.8 out of 10. As I Yikes. said, 9.8 you can get. When you get to hit 10, you got to really <laughs> be good. doing something. <laughs> you really good. <laughs> Ew, yeah. So uh, the uh, the VMware problem is uh, CVE 2021-21972. Uh, it's a, as I said, remote code execution vulnerability. 
Uh, vCenter is an application for Windows or Linux used by admins to enable and manage virtualization of large networks. Within a day of VMware issuing a patch for this very bad problem, proof-of-concept exploits appeared from at least six different sources. The severity of the vulnerability combined with the availability of working exploits for both Windows and Linux machines immediately motivated hackers to scramble to find vulnerable servers. Troy Mersch, a researcher with Bad Packets, he wrote, We've detected mass scanning activity targeting vulnerable VMware vCenter servers. He said that the binary edge search engine, which we know is sort of a, another version of Shodan, the binary edge search engine found almost 15,000 vCenter servers exposed to the Internet, while Shodan searches revealed about 6,700. The mass scanning is aiming at identifying servers that have not yet installed the patch. So the flaw is just about as, it, as bad as it gets. It allows a hacker with no authorization to upload files to vulnerable vCenter servers that are publicly accessible over port 443, which as we know is TLS, HTTPS. Successful exploits will result in hackers gaining unfettered remote code execution privileges in the underlying operating system. The vulnerability stems from a lack of authentication in the vRealize operations plugin, which unfortunately is installed by default. So they're all going to have it. Um, in their blog posting, Positive Technologies, who discovered and responsibly privately reported the flaw to VMware, they wrote, in our opinion, the RCE, remote code execution, vulnerability in the vCenter server can pose no less a threat than the infamous vulnerability in Citrix. And here they're referring to CVE 2019-19781, which was widely implicated in that the mass of ransomware attacks on hospitals those early ones back in 2019. They said the error allows an unauthorized user to send a specially crafted request, which will later give them the opportunity to execute arbitrary commands on the server. So they're being a little bit cagey because they don't want to, you know, give away everything. They're being responsible still. They said after receiving such an opportunity, you know, on the other hand, right, six, six public exploits with full source are available. So it's, it's cats out of the bag. After receiving such an opportunity, they wrote, the attacker can develop this attack successfully, move through the corporate network, and gain access to the data stored in the attacked system, as more, such as information about virtual machines and system users. If the vulnerable software can be accessed from the Internet, which, of course, is the case in vCenter systems, those 15,000-plus of them, this will allow an external attacker to penetrate the company's external perimeter and also gain access to sensitive data. Once again, he, they write, I would like to note that this vulnerability is dangerous 
as it can be used by any unauthorized user. So yeah, we got the message. Um, again, this is, uh, it's one of those, you know, uh, races against time, essentially. One day after this patch was released, six proof of concepts existed and mass scanning began. So, so you know, my, my mantra has been make sure you are maintaining an open line of communication with the vendors of all the frontline equipment that you're maintaining and make sure this doesn't go into a, you know, yeah, we do these on Friday sort of mailbox, but, you know, really comes to the attention of somebody who it may be, you know, necessary to get out of bed or, you know, yes, reboot a server that you'd rather not reboot because you're going to have to kick everybody off that's currently using it. But boo-hoo, you know, this thing needs to get fixed now. So this is one of those. And there's just, you know, I, I, there, there isn't any way around this. The, you know, they had to release the patch. It, the only thing they could do was to hope that the news got out that the people in re, who are in responsible positions would re, respond to it instantly, um, you know, inside of the time frame required to reverse engineer it and for the bad guys to start to start scanning. Who knows how, I mean, you know, and this is going to typically be a larger company running a VMware vCenter. That they have a huge percentage of install base. I saw that it's like 80% market share at, at the high end of this kind of virtualization up in the high fortune companies. So those are the targets that the ransomware guys want. So no surprise that this was, you know, not only was it, you know, simple to, to execute uh, once you had the proof of concept code, obviously simple to reverse engineer because it only took a day, but the target was juicy. The target set would also be juicy targets of opportunity. So, you know, this thing just had everything. Um, last week, I want to I want to share with our listeners. I think everyone will get a kick out of it. Um, I mentioned that one troublesome machine owned by a tester in Germany was again causing my new code some trouble. Back in the earlier read speed benchmark development days, I was worried about wearing out my welcome with him because I was producing, because like he had a problem. And the only thing I could do was to produce a series of test releases in what was ultimately a futile attempt to zero in on the trouble and fix it. I mean, I added auditing code that was spitting out, like leaving breadcrumbs as it went, and then they just disappeared. And it's like, okay. And then I would try something else and I would zero in on where the breadcrumbs disappeared, you know, did everything I could remotely by just giving him t test after test after test to, to try and run and then report like on what happened. Then miraculously, his system started working. And of course that always makes me nervous because if you don't really do something to fix a problem, then that miracle might choose to reverse itself at any point. And sure enough, when I moved the new code over into Spinrite and released the first test releases of it there, it no longer worked on his system. So I had purchased 
one of the very same old gigabyte motherboards from eBay. Uh, and it came last week. So, and I wow. may have had it, in fact, but but hadn't. What you got it? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I have that's, the the, that's, the guys. That's such dedication. <laughs> I can't. This is it. oh, that's standard operating procedure for me. I've got good. controllers and drives wow. and motherboards, and it's it you know a lot, almost everything I can do just by sort of l- looking at the symptoms, looking at an audit. Um, you know, and then making a good guess. And then the guy will say, yay, it works now. It's like, you know, congratulations. Like, okay, good. <laughs> good. Phew. But sometimes it's just nothing I can do. So, uh, I put the, I put the motherboard in a, in a, an ATX case that I had. Uh, anyway, I thought I'd give our listeners a sneak peek into this micro drama because it demonstrates a bit about the process of debugging code and serves as a beautiful example of the weird sorts of things that we face in the real world where code which is born in the lab actually needs to function in the real world eventually. Um, and as it turns out, I now know I could never have figured this out remotely. I mean, I would have thought he was nuts. I mean, I just wouldn't have known what to think because even with the machine, Sitting in front of me, what I saw made absolutely no sense. The problem was occurring in a simple routine, which copied the contents of a disk sector buffer from high XMS memory above one megabyte down into traditional x86 segmented memory below one megabyte. Should be a piece of cake. But the machine went into that subroutine and it never came back, never came out. So, okay, at least now I had apparently located the location of the problem that Chris and his machine in Germany was having. So I fired up my debugger and I followed the processor into that simple subroutine. As we've talked about a lot, one of the reasons I find the Intel chips enjoyable to program and also why I never want to program a a, a risk chip, uh, you know, an ARM-based architecture, for example, is that the Intel chips have a risk, or I'm mean, sorry, have a CISC architecture, complex instruction set computer, CISC, C-I-S-C. Um, the ultimate example of a CISC. ISA, an ISA, instruction set architecture, was probably the DEC PDP-11 and the VAX machines. They were designed back at a time when a lot of code was still being written in their assembly language and when compiler design was still sort of a nascent art. It was, you know, I mean, those are the early days. So the chips themselves presented a sort of high-ish level language to their to the at the at the assembly language at the machine language to the people who were going to program them it was they they wanted to make it pleasant okay so for example the intel x86 architecture includes an instruction that i used in that subroutine it's a byte range copy instruction that no self-respecting risk chip would ever abide. 
that that's like what <laughs> we're not copying a range of bites we do one thing really well and if you want more of that you got to ask for it but not intel so the starting address of the source range is placed into the chip's SI register. SI standing for source index. I'm not kidding. Um, and the starting address of the destination range to copy to is placed into the chip's DI register. DI standing for destination index. And the number of bytes to be copied is placed into the CX register, C as in count. Then a single instruction, like one byte opcode instruction is executed, which causes the heavily microcoded Intel chip, or actually in this specific case, an AMD processor, which is a Phenom 2 that was on this gigabyte motherboard, to fetch a byte from where the SI register points, store it to where the DI register points, increment both the SI and DI registers so that they will now each be pointing to the next byte in their ranges, then decrement the CX register. If the CX register has not just been decremented to zero, then repeat copy the next byte, and so on. So essentially, by executing a one-byte instruction, after setting things up by putting specific pointers into specific registers, the Intel will move a, will copy a block of data from one place to another. <clears throat> so I'm explaining all this because as I single-stepped the processor, instruction by instruction, you know, watching it like, Put the data for S into the SI register. No problem. Put the data into the DI register. That that worked. Store the the you know the 512 byte count into CX. Yep. I then stepped into that byte range copy instruction, and nothing happened. It, it was as if the instruction was taking forever to execute. The, you know, it just went in to the debugger. The debugger didn't come back to me. So one of the tricks we all learned, and Leo, I know you know, back in the early days of the PC, when a system appeared to lock up, was to hit the num lock on our keyboards <laughs> a few times. I forgot about that. <laughs> and, oh yeah, I still do it. Of course, I'm still living back in It doesn't do anything, world. does it? Uh, well, it turns the light on and off. And so... That, so when you if the numlock key on your keyboard works, that means that that keyboard interrupts are being oh, serviced. Okay, yeah. that the BIOS right. has seen that you hit numlock and it sends a message to the keyboard to turn that light on or off. So it sort of says, "Oh look, I'm not dead yet. We're not. <laughs> not yeah, it's just a flesh wound. Yes. So, so you know, essentially back then." It meant that there was still some hope. But if you hit numlock a few times and the light didn't change, yeah. then probably not even the famous three-fingered salute of Control-Alt-Delete would, would bring the system back. It was time to reach over for the reset button in order to get things restarted. But in this case, numlock was still toggling. So 
the debugger showed that like it executed this instruction and nothing happened. Yet NumLock was toggling. And Chris had originally also noted that the little ASCII character spinners, if you if you may, may remember, when when the read speed benchmark is running, I, I like I cycle the characters at the at the ends of the 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 title banner, which are vertical bars. I switch them to uh, to uh, 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 left leaning uh, slashes then minus signs, then right-leaning slashes, then back to vertical bar. So it makes little spinners. He commented that they were still spinning. His system oh. stopped working ah. right in the middle, but they were still spinning. Interesting. Which told me, again, that meant that the timer interrupt was being serviced because I, 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 the, the, the timer interrupts at 18.2 hertz. And so I, wait, I count several of those, and then I advance the ASCII character to the next position. So... Things were still working. The processor was still running, um, but so it was also it was a apparently loop. Apparently, right? You're stuck. Well, in a loop. yeah, it was apparently just sitting waiting at that single instruction, doing nothing. Now, Intel chips have some built-in debugging support, and this debugger works using that. It sets a hardware breakpoint on the instruction after the one that's about to be stepped through. That way, when the processor comes out on the other side of the instruction, the debugger retains control. It updates the screen to show the current processor state, and you can see where you are. But that breakpoint was never being tripped because the AMD Phenom 2 processor was apparently never stepping out of that instruction to the next one. So I stared at that for a while thinking, what? You know, it made no sense. It had to work. And I think I mentioned last week that Chris had observed that everything worked just dandy if he booted from a diskette, but not when he booted from a USB thumb drive. And in my subsequent experimentation before rolling up my sleeves, I learned that all was okay when I booted from any mass storage device. And in subsequent testing, I determined that it wasn't actually what booted the machine, but from where the program was run. In other words, this instruction, this, this one instruction would hang if I booted from a hard drive, but then ran the code from a USB thumb drive. Yet everyone else who's been testing this code all along is also typically booting and running from the code from their USB thumb drives. Yet no one else was seeing this problem, which, you know, was really not surprising since this problem could not possibly be happening in the first place. Yet it was. Okay, so because what I was seeing was impossible, I decided to decompose that fancy single instruction Intel block copy into a series of individual instructions that would accomplish the same thing. You know, do my own loop rather than use this built-in looping behavior of the Intel chip. And again, I single-stepped. And again, the system hung at one indivisibly simple instruction. When the processor attempted to load the accumulator register with the contents 
of the location in upper memory. That So now we're just at a move instruction. Like, there's nothing more basic, more simple than a move instruction, right? You got to move data from one place to another. It never completed. Uh, but also, it never completed only when the code was run from USB. And, and you know, DOS doesn't load anything on the fly. It's not doing anything fancy. It's old school. It loads everything first into RAM before it starts to run the program. So how could there be any, like, memory of where the code came, where the byte came from, the evil byte, the move instruction that it just, like, wasn't going to run? So uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I have no idea why running from USB could possibly matter. The only thing I can conclude is that there's some bizarre, subtle bug in that old AMD Phenom 2 processor. The Intel x86 architecture provides us with six segmentation registers. I was using the default, which is DS, which stands for data segment. So, you know, what I was seeing was impossible. In a Hail Mary... I changed the code to use the FS segment register and everything worked perfectly every time. So henceforth, none of Spinrite's code will ever set the data segment to zero and attempt to use it to access 32-bit flat memory storage. That, you know, doing that should work and notice that it works for everybody else. And as far as we know, everywhere except on a gigabyte motherboard with an AMD Phenom 2 processor when the code is loaded from USB. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Um, when I published a test release for Chris to try and also to check my own sanity, it did indeed fix his trouble too. And someone else who had never reported in but who had been watching, wrote to say that his similar AMD Phenom 2-based gigabyte system had also never worked before, but now it does. So anyway, I thought our listeners might get a kick out of a peek inside a bit of last week's work. Uh, most problems that I track down and resolve teach me something that I don't know. That's what makes this journey so interesting. I can't say that, you know, that I learned anything from this problem except what not to do for magical, mysterious reasons, uh, and which I will never do in the name of achieving total compatibility. Um, you know, once upon a time, back in 04, way back, yeah, when... Spinrite 6.0 was released. One of the reasons it developed such a strong following was that it just always worked. I am now in the process of wrestling this new and soon to emerge Spinrite 6.1 back into that state where it just always works. And when I'm finished, it will. I'm surprised, given that bug, that you still prefer segmented memory architectures in x86 <laughs> to uh, the uh, flat memory model of uh, ARM processors. 
I mean, um, why, why do you prefer uh, x86? I wouldn't say that I prefer it. Okay. Um, and in fact, I'm having I mean, this so bug much... comes from a segmented memory flaw yes. of some kind. Yes. Yes. What what I appreciate is that it is often the case that you don't always need access to 32 bits of stuff. That is, you know, that's 4.3 gigabytes. Yeah, um, yeah. Most things are, you know, fit within 64K, which means you could access them with 16 bits. But if you were going to access them with 16 bits, then you need to choose which 16 bits in the system. And that's what segmentation does, is it, it gives you an offset to the beginning of a 64K range of bytes. And it's efficient. You know, in terms of like back once upon a time when efficiency actually mattered. You know, people say, Gibson, I can't believe your your benchmark is 13K. It's like, yeah, 13,000 bytes. And a lot of that is text because I wanted to say something on the screen. The point is we have we've completely lost touch with how efficient code can be. And I, you know, I understand I'm the weirdo here, but these are the problems that I like to solve. And uh, uh, but at the same time, Leo, I am so anxious to move to this new 32 bit platform for Spinrite 7. I'm just I cannot wait to get there because it, it really it will be nice. I'm you know, I've been in, in programming Windows, as we know, since I stopped programming Spinrite. And I've really gotten spoiled by just like being able to point to something and go, oh, yeah, I want that. Even though it's a long way away, I, I, I still want it. And we should I don't point want to out, have to, like, Steve is one of a handful of people that, that addresses his own registers and pays attention to this stuff. Almost everybody else is using a higher level language that you can completely ignore what's going on at the uh, processor level. It's just you, yes. Steve. Let's face it. I, I know. <laughs> but I know. as a connoisseur of assembly language, I res—I mean, I respect your opinion on this because you're, you're the last man standing. Congratulations. <laughs> no, you, I'm sure there are plenty of people, especially in the gaming industry, who are writing, you know, the most time. Oh, and Leo, the guys code. who do that, those demos, you know, the, 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 the demos that fit within a certain size right. and do this amazing right. stuff with they graphics. Holy yeah. crap. Are, yeah. Well, and... Hackers, hackers are all living here because this is this is where they are. Right, is down in buffer overruns right. and register contents and things. Right. So right. you know, at the at the application programmer level, nobody needs to worry about this. But when you when you, anything you do where you where it actually is necessary to like know exactly what's going on, well, exactly what's going on is at, is in the registers. That's where the action is. This man lives in the registers. That's the truth of it. Yep. Okay. And actually, it's really valuable to understand that, by the way, because there are subtle bugs that happen in higher level languages that it's helpful to understand why. You know, and things, especially like well, numeric overruns and things where you understand that's a 32-bit integer, you you know, or a float, and you can't, you know, you can't get that precision or that kind of thing. Well, and what would you do if you had a higher level language and you you executed a, an instruction that was supposed to copy something, and it just <laughs> went in and time. never came back. I sent you like, a wonderful uh, article. Uh, I don't know if you read it about debugging the loading code in Grand Theft Auto 4, which is notoriously 
horrific. Like, oh yeah, you you sent that to me for for reading while I was uh, recovering from my my my, my second vaccine. vaccine shot. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, it's famous. GTA Four takes sometimes twenty minutes before you can play the game. I mean, it's it's, it's insane. insane, and it turns out it's it's because they're parsing a big JSON file using SSScanf. And it's got a subtle bug uh, in it. Oh. And it's, uh, it well, it's it's actually not a bug, but it's something that causes, it's an inefficiency. And, right. Uh, do you pay, you probably at the level you're coding, pay no attention to efficiency, to big O notation or anything like that. That doesn't come up, does it? Oh, yeah. Um, when I remember when I was doing the um, LRS, the longest repeated strings, oh, I was working on right. that. That was that was, that was a that was serious, it. you know, linear uh, versus NP, geometric uh, expansion N, of yeah, the uh, time. P, yeah. P versus NP right. uh, sort of problem. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you do pay attention to that stuff. Usually in assembly, it's probably, you know, it's probably not, doesn't come up that much. You're, you're, every, all the loops but, are unrolled and everything, you know, you're not recursive. Yeah. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I dropped, in fact, I used our own podcast, uh, uh, something I learned from the podcast. I had in the in the original read speed code, I was hashing the the boot sectors of drives with uh, SHA. I don't remember now. Uh, uh, maybe SHA one because I really didn't need that much, but it was still a rather large algorithm. Right. And when I moved into Spinrite, I was upset that I was I would that just you know a hash function was taking up so much space I love it so I switched to that the FNV function FNV1 which we talked about on the podcast which simply multiplies a byte by a specific uh by a specific prime and it's what the hackers were using oh. in the ransomware to create a high speed very small lightweight hash function Spinrite now has that. Interesting. Yeah. I and I that. saved myself yeah. several K worth of hash lookup tables by 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 switching to a very economical you know, uh, basically, you know, FNV. It doesn't have to be cryptographically strong. I just needed a good hash. And now I've got one that takes up no space. Well, that was kind of the bottom line in this fix. This guy, by the way, didn't have access to the source code. He disassembled is the other thing I thought about you. Good he disassembled it and and uh, and did it all by hand. He didn't have a symbol table or anything. Was able to figure it out, modify the DLL, and and it really came down to the fact that that the, these folks at Rockstar had written their own JSON parser, which was horrifically ineffic- oh. inefficient. Yeah. And, he, and oh. the bottom line is use use libraries. Don't 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 try to. You're nuts to write your own JSON uh, parser. That's just nuts. Why do that? He fixed it. He got about 70% improvement in loading time. Nice. Yeah, we'll see if Rockstar pays any attention. Anyway, that's why I sent it to you. I thought, while you're curled up on the couch, you'd enjoy this tale of disassembly. Perfect story. Let's take our final break. Okay. I don't get it. And then, oh boy. Uh, (laughs) I can't wait. Sea name collusion. The topic of the hour. Collusion. I said, is that collision? He said, no. If only it were collision. Our show today brought to you by IT Pro TV. If you love this geeky stuff, well, you're a geek, right? Maybe uh, <clears throat> if you don't love your job, you're in the wrong job. Maybe you ought to consider a career in IT. IT right now 
is booming. There are 4 million openings, unfilled openings in IT right now. I think more than a million in IT security alone. I understand there's no shortage of ways to brush up on your IT skills or get the certs, but I got to recommend IT Pro TV because not only because they are my friends, but because they're the best. They're the most entertaining, the most engaging, the most up-to-date. I'll give you an example of how committed they are. They built their own facilities. We were just talking, Steve, before the show about don't build your own building. They built their own building with not one, not two. We have two studios here, seven, seven live studios, and they're running uh, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., constantly updating. Why? Because if you're taking the cert exams, the questions change, the software versions get updated, the answers, everything changes all the time in IT. You want the latest material. And that's what you're going to get from IT Pro TV. Now, by the way, I mentioned the, the job openings in cybersecurity. You're listening to security now. I know you care about this. It is time, right, to get some good, smart IT professionals and IT leadership in there to stop this insanity. And that's what IT Pro TV will do for you. Their IT Pro TV business platform has been developed from the ground up to support online IT training, both for employees, your own IT team, but also for IT leaders. It's part of the ACI learning portfolio of audit, cyber, and IT learning solutions for consumers and enterprises. That's a big deal. If you know that name, you know what I'm talking about. You can access over 5,800 hours of engaging video training online and on demand. You can learn the details about the most up-to-date attacks, malware detection, cryptography, pen testing, end-user security awareness, training your users, that kind of thing, and a whole lot more. Whether you're an individual looking to launch or advance your career in cybersecurity or any IT realm, or a business looking for ways to keep your IT team on top or your leaders on top, IT Pro TV is the place to go. They're the only... For example, the only official video training partner for CompTIA, that's a great place to get those certs that are most in demand, A-plus, Security-plus, Network-plus. This month, Cisco month at IT Pro TV, they'll be featuring their 12 Cisco courses. That's not 12 individual videos. That's 12 courses with many videos per course, including CCNA, CCNP, CCT, Encore, SLED, and Anarsi. They'll be hosting a live webinar with Cisco Award winner David Bombal. It's called Get Hands-On with Cisco. That's coming up. It's March 11th, about a week off. And then, of course, it's on demand, as with everything IT Pro TV does, by the way, at itpro.tv. In this case, itpro.tv slash webinars. But I think you'd like to be in the live webinar. It's a lot of fun, and you get to ask questions. For more insight about IT, there's also their great free podcast, Technado. Don Pazette, one of the founders, hosts that, features uh, industry guests and IT News Recaps, it's a deep dive into the IT realm. These guys live, breathe, eat, sleep IT. And if you want to learn IT, that's where you want to go. It's an environment that's fun, engaging. It's a great community. Uh, and, it's, and it's led and run by people who are devoted to IT. That's what you want. By the way, we always like to mention when companies that we uh, we do ads for are uh, doing good things. IT Pro TV is helping communities. Last year... In 2020, they served 30-plus COVID-impacted educational institutions by doing free training. 
So thank you, IT Pro TV. 225,000 members strong now. I remember when they just started out. <laughs> They've been with us since the beginning, and uh, I think it was 20, was it 2013? Yeah. They now are up to 225,000 members, soon to be a quarter million. And those, you just ask an IT Pro TV customer, you'll, you'll hear it over and over again. This is the place to be. They got the knowledge, the support. They can help you further your IT career. They can get you, help you get into IT. If you love this kind of stuff, the stuff you're listening to on Twitter, and especially the stuff you're listening to with Steve, itpro.tv slash security now. That's the place to go. We have a great deal to you. 30% off uh, your course, 30%, almost a third off. It's a big discount. And it's not just for a little limited time. It is as long as you stay active. It could be forever. And you know what? You probably are going to stay active because it's so fun itpro.tv slash security. Now, what's the code? SN30. SN30. 30% off for the lifetime of your active subscription. We love these guys. ITProTV. Build or expand your IT career and enjoy the journey with ITProTV. We thank them so much for supporting security now. You support them by, uh, support us by using that uh, URL, itpro.tv slash security now. Remember that. All right, Steve, on we go. One little bit of news. Uh, while you were d d delivering this final uh, break to our listeners, uh, Paul at What's Up Doc 114 uh, shot me a note that exchange servers all over the world were currently under attack. Uh. I did a little quick checking, and sure enough, today on March 2nd, Microsoft just released seven remote code execution vulnerability oh patches God. for Exchange Server. Um, the most three recent, I think 2019, 2016, and 2013 or 12. Anyway, I did a little digging uh, and I found a note. The risk is still extremely high. The exploit allows an attacker to perform a pre-auth RCE and essentially end up with the ability to run commands with system privileges since most customers don't use split permissions or have not performed the steps required to remove excessive permissions from exchange servers and Active Directory, it's likely that the attacker may be able to gain highly privileged rights in your on-premises domain. So it must be, I don't know where the, oh, yep, you found it. Emergency patches for four, and actually there are seven. Yeah, so this, uh, that was, I saw this is out on, of date. This is Dan pages. Gooden writing at Ars Technica. He's always very good. He pushed this yep. about an hour ago, and it's now it was four. It's now up to seven zero days in exchange servers. Wow. That's Woo. not good. And by the way, <laughs> Microsoft says hackers have been using it on behalf of the Chinese government. Oh, so that's not good. That's not good. Well, thanks for well, the update. That's why people listen. We don't normally okay. do breaking zero days, but yeah. it, when they no. happen, we got to, right? Yep. Jeez. And so uh, here are some news that is just, it's beyond distressing. Um, okay. So Criteo, I guess that's how you pronounce it, C-R-I-T-E-O, is a leading tracking company. They send website administrators with whom they already have a tracking and analytics relationship an email. It asks them to make a quick change, which will, quote, only take two minutes, unquote, and it will, quote, 
adapt their website to the evolution of browsers, unquote, which is to say that it will work around their own website's visitors' attempts to block tracking and to re-enable tracking to their site's visitors in a, quote, more optimal way. Then in this email, after presenting instructions for the site's webmaster about how to make the required change, which will indeed only require a couple of minutes, in the particular instance of email that I saw, they conclude with, if this is not done, you may lose 11.64% of your sales, 11.53% of your gross turnover, and 20.82% of your audience. And this brings us Jeez. to some recently published research, which explores just how prevalent and pervasive this new technique has grown over the past few years. The group of five researchers will be presenting their work at the 21st Privacy Enhancing Technologies Symposium, PETS, 2021, this July. But we have the research now. Um, I'm going to quickly read the abstract of their paper and then explain in detail, because this is really important and horrifying, what this means. Their abstract says, online tracking is a whack-a-mole game between trackers who build and monetize behavioral user profiles through intrusive data collection and anti-tracking mechanisms deployed as a browser extension built into the browser or as a DNS resolver. As a response to pervasive and opaque online tracking, more and more users adopt anti-tracking tools to preserve their privacy. Consequently, as the information that trackers can gather on users is being curbed, some trackers are looking for ways to evade these tracking countermeasures. In this paper, we report on a large-scale longitudinal evaluation of an anti-tracking evasion scheme that leverages CNAME records to include tracker resources in a same-site context, effectively bypassing anti-tracking measures that used fixed host name-based block lists. Using historical HTTP archive data, we find that this tracking scheme is rapidly gaining traction, especially among high-traffic websites. Furthermore, we report on several privacy and security issues inherent to the technical setup of CNAME-based tracking that we detected through a combination of automated and manual analysis. We find that some trackers are using the technique against the Safari browser, which is known to include strict anti-tracking configurations. Our findings show that websites using CNAME trackers must take extra precautions to avoid leaking sensitive information to third parties. Okay, so here's the story. So first of all, what are CNAME records? They're not something we've had much occasion to talk about in the past. I have a feeling we, <laughs> that's going to change. Um, but on the other hand, DNS is something we're pretty much always talking about. A CNAME record 
is simply another type of DNS record. Uh, as we know, a DNS A, standing for address record, resolves a specific domain name to a dotted quad IPv4 address. Similarly, a DNS AAAA record resolves a specific domain name into an IPv6 address. An SMTP email server might query a domain, like, for example, GRC, for any MX records, which will point to one or more IP addresses which are used for email servers for that domain. And for various reasons, a domain's text records might be queried for information, like to provide the public key used to check a domain's anti-spam signatures. So although DNS's primary purpose is to look up and return IP addresses, it's also a nifty general-purpose distributed internet directory capable of containing and returning all sorts of other information. And another of those types of queries is the CNAME. CNAME, C-N-A-M-E, stands for canonical name, whereas an A query returns an IPv4 address, a CNAME query returns another domain name. The domain name being queried is considered to be an alias, and what's returned is the canonical name for that alias. And CNAME records are handled specially by DNS. As Wikipedia explains, CNAME records are handled specially in the domain name system and have several restrictions on their use. When a DNS resolver encounters a CNAME record while looking for a regular resource record, it will restart the query using the canonical name instead of the original name. The canonical name that a CNAME record points to can be anywhere in the DNS, whether local or on a remote server in a different DNS zone. So you can think of it as a pointer. It is a pointer to a different DNS name. So here's what's evil. And, and what that email above was asking website admins to do and which many, they, these guys counted more than 10,000, I'll get to that in a minute, websites have done. They were asked to say, okay, uh, say at, at example.com, to place a CNAME record into their site's DNS such that some arbitrary but specified subdomain of example.com, like say dyzxrdb.example.com, would be an alias for the canonical name webtrackersareus.com. So what that does exactly is anytime someone wants to look up the IP address for dyzxrdb.example.com, 
their assigned DNS resolver, which is performing the DNS resolution for them, will query the example.com domain's name servers for that subdomain. But because that subdomain record is a CNAME record, that's what will be returned, not an IPv4 IP address, but what will be returned to the querying DNS resolver is a CNAME result with that webtrackersrus.com as its answer. The resolving DNS server will then that understands that is the canonical name for which dyzxrdb.example.com was an alias, will then ask webtrackersrus.com silently, like, like on its own, because this is all built into DNS, for its IP. Whereupon the user's DNS resolver will return that IP as the IP of dyzxrdb.example.com to the, to the person, the browser, the web browser that asked for it. From the user's perspective, they asked for the IP of a subdomain of example.com and they received an IP. But due to prior collusion between the website they're visiting and webtrackersrus.com, the IP they received was for webtrackersrus.com. From the standpoint of the user's browser, this is an in-domain, same-domain query. So third-party cookie restrictions do not apply, and the user's web browser will treat this query as a subdomain of the website being visited. Okay, so what we have so far is a horrifically sneaky means of deliberately overriding a user's wishes for anti-tracking by websites that feel that they have a superior right to track and obtain leverage from their visitors. But believe it or not, it's much worse. Cookies set on specific domains are accessible to and sent to anyone who queries their subdomains. This means that by colluding in this way to allow an untrustworthy third-party tracking entity to pretend to be within a website's domain. Oh. Yes, Leo. That's the sneaky as hell. It it well, the cookies So it's not a third party. It doesn't appear to be a third party cookie, even though it is. Correct. It it doesn't appear to be a third party a query, a third party request. It actually is. But this means the cookies being held by the browser of visitors to that site will be sent to that third party entity. Because the browser won't know any better. Right. The website's visitors log on session authentication cookies will be sent outside of that domain. Ooh, that's not good. No, 
to untrusted and I would argue untrustworthy third-party tracking and analytics wow. companies. That's really not good. You're sending your Facebook no. login cookie to them, in effect. Exactly. The you fact can post that it's is done you. over jeez. Yes. The fact that it's done over HTTPS provides no security. Anyone at any of those tracking advertising analytics firms, of which thirteen have now been identified by the researchers, could trivially impersonate any user of any website who didn't explicitly log off and who were therefore or and who therefore still have a valid authentication cookie it is an unbelievable breach of trust and abuse of web technology i ran across a wonderful website that allows us to play with and explore our own browser's cookie and subdomain handling to understand exactly this issue. And I made it this week's Security Now podcast shortcut of the week. So it's https colon slash slash grc.sc slash 808, because this is podcast number 808. That will bounce you over to scripts.cmbuckley.co.uk slash cookies.php. And I played with it this morning because I was wondering whether my Firefox 86 with its new full total cookie protection that I opened with fully enabled would help. No, it is not blocking any of this leakage because these are not third-party cookies. These are subdomain cookies. What with this cool site, again, grc.sc slash 808, it allows you to, to set cookies in different domains and subdomains of that site and see which ones are returned. It's a very cool little page. So I'm sure that our listeners will, will get a kick out of it. Okay, so how widespread is this behavior? Thankfully, these researchers have gone to some effort to unearth the extent of this currently spreading industry-wide website collusion with the tracking industry. It's not difficult. You just, for example, resolve any subdomains of the primary domain that you receive from a website. You do that DNS lookup for yourself as if you were a recursive DNS resolver and you see whether you receive a CNAME record that points to any one of the 13 current providers of this form of CNAME tracking. And you've got something up on the screen, I so see, So this from, site, from that page. basically what I've done is I've, I've told cmbuckley.co.uk to do, set my cookie. And it returns my cookie, even though it's a, it looks like a first-party cookie, but it's really my third-party cookie. Is that what's happening here? Well, so and, – and then if you look, click down below in that text in the lines below, yeah. see that they have an A, a dot scripts. something. Yeah, oops. So that's, so that's a that's a subdomain of – that's a subdomain of the root domain right. and you can see it Same received your cookie. With the cookie, yep. Yes. And then so, let's so, zoom so, on this. So that's the point is that it – because – 
It's a subdomain. You set the cookie on the root domain. Got it. Subdomains all get the same cookies. I see. So, uh, so if with this collusion, with with the collusion enabled by the C name, so, you know, some random gibberish dot at like am, dot Amazon dot com, it would get. Amazon.com's cookies. Uh, All the Amazon.com cookies you have would go to the third party. It's that bad, Leo. It's unbelievable that this has been happening. You know, and of course they're know? saying, oh, well, we, we'll never do that. We just want to know who's visiting your site. We don't. Right. This is not, this is for you. We would never steal your right. authentication cookies this is for your benefit this, this makes you. your ads more more yeah. more relevant ads you know and it keeps the internet free and it wouldn't be free otherwise this is one way people are getting around ad blockers and trackers is looking if everything looks first party they don't block it none of these block it if it's first party right right so if you can make a third party ad or a third party be cookie, a subdomain look, yeah yep wow yep okay so um the researchers found this technique currently in use on a total of 10,474 oh. websites. And of the top 10,000 websites overall, 9.98%, 1 in 10 of the top 10,000 are currently employing oh, this form God. of CNAME tracking, cloaking subdomain collusion are they sending the cookies and to themselves or to this third party it, there that's the problem there's no distinction we don't know it's we don't know. all no 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 i mean we do know there's no distinction all if you the when a, a by our browsers what that what that page you were playing with demonstrates is our browsers send cookies set on the root domain to their subdomains. Right. That's the way browsers are designed. They're supposed to do that. Once upon a time, you could start the root domain with a dot. It'd be like dot amazon.com. And that would say, don't share the these root cookies with my children, with our subdomains. That behavior went away years ago. It's now ignored by browsers, even, you know, even if they still see it. Okay, so... Their research furthermore observed what they termed targeted treatment of Apple's Safari web browser, where the advertising technology company I mentioned before, Critio, who mailed the letter that I opened with, switched specifically to CNAME cloaking to bypass Safari's otherwise strong privacy protections. And it's worse. Data leaks. Significant cookie data leaks were found on 95% of the sites that used that C name tracking. So 95% of the 10,474 sites, all of which sent cookies containing private information such as full names, locations, email addresses, and even session authentication cookies to trackers of other domains without the user having having any knowledge or control. Again, remember that the entire presumption of cookies is that 
bad and abuse prone as they may be, at least they stay within the domain that set them. At least their content, whatever it might be, even if it's a user's actual name and real world identity, bad practice as that would be, at least it remains between those two parties. So while cookies can be used for tracking, the only data that's ever returned to a domain is something that that domain had previously sent. Thus, by, Dinette, by definition, it's not secret to that domain. But now, thanks to the horrendous abuse of CNAMES being used to deliberately confuse cookie domains, data is being sent with queries by the user's browser to entities who never set that data in the first place. That tracker never set the authentication cookie, which is how the user is staying logged in. They never put the user's name and location and email address in the cookie. The domain did, figuring, okay, yeah, it's bad practice, but what the hell? It's going to stay here. It's only between the user's browser and us. And, oh, look, we're HTTPS now, so no one can spy on it. C names break that so that all the information which was private between the user's browser and the domain is now being sent to any subdomains. And this subdomain is now a tracker, an analytics company. Um, as the researchers noted, that data, which should never be exposed to any third party, often contains information that tracking firms would die to have and leverage. But now they don't have to. They just need to get websites to collude with them by adding a CNAME record to that domain's DNS. There is a bit of good news. The only good news here is that good old Gorehill's uBlock Origin add-on is at least partially effective at spotting and blocking accesses to these despicable subdomains. I have in the show notes a table from the research, which table one titled Overview of the Analyzed CNAME-Based Trackers Based on the HTTP Archive Dataset from October 2020. The number one tracker is a company called Pardo, P-A-R-D-O-T. Unfortunately, it's owned by Salesforce. Um, that had the highest number, just shy of, of 6,000 detected websites. 5,993 detected websites were using Pardo, uh, a Salesforce company, which, I mean, we all know Salesforce. They built, they say, powerful business-to-business -business marketing automation, stating that Pardo offers powerful marketing automation to help marketing and sales teams find and nurture the best leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. And they are the number one user and abuser of this technology. <clears throat> number two position is Adobe Experience Cloud that is also doing this. And then there's a list of all 13 of these companies. Um, but in a note on this table, the researchers did observe 
that Pardo is being blocked because the third-party script being sourced from Pardo.com is being blocked, that is by uBlock origin, and that if that script was not blocked, then CNAME abuse would succeed. The researchers had the following to say about countermeasures against CNAME. They said, in response to a report that a tracker was using CNAMEs to circumvent privacy block lists, uBlock Origin released an update for its Firefox version that thwarts CNAME cloaking. The extension blocks requests to CNAME trackers by resolving the domain names using the browser's own browser.dns.resolve API to obtain the last CNAME record, if any, before each request is sent. And by that, they mean CNAME records can actually can chain, right? Because it's a pointer that causes the DNS to go to another domain, that one could have a CNAME that could point it somewhere else. So, so it wants to follow the chain to the last CNAME record. Then it checks whether the domain name matches any of the rules that it is blocking. So it's got a, a, robu- a robust CNAME chain following te- a technology in uBlock Origin. He says, subsequently, the extension checks whether the domain name matches any of its rules in its block lists and blocks requests with matching domains while adding the outcome to a local cache. And then they said, although uBlock Origin also has a version for Chromium-based browsers, the same defense cannot be applied because Chromium-based browser extensions do not have access to an API to perform DNS queries. As such, at the time of this writing, it is technically impossible for these extensions to block requests to trackers that leverage CNAME records to avoid detection. uBlock Origin for Chrome, which does not have an explicit defense for CNAME-based tracking, still manages to block several trackers. This is because the requests to the trackers matched an entry in the block list with a URL pattern that did not consider the host name. Unfortunately, it is fairly straightforward for the tracker to circumvent such a fixed rule-based measure by randomizing the path of the tracking script and analytics endpoint, as is evidenced by the various trackers that could only be blocked by the uBlock origin version on Firefox. And you see that in this table, they have a, a, a check a, a, a column for uBlock origin where Firefox was successful and uBlock origin where Chrome was successful, uBlock origin on Firefox, because it is, actually is doing CNAME block lists, uh, uh, is, more, is, is able to be more effective. So it's Still, interesting because I use Firefox and uh, NextDNS. So it looks yep. like I have pretty full coverage if I do uh, both yep. of those. NextDNS Next DNS is also uh, uh, a good CNAME blocker. Yeah, yes. they're, they're kind of like a pie hole in the sky. Right. Yeah, I love that. So the researchers wrap up their research with the following conclusion. They said, our research sheds light on the emerging ecosystem of CNAME-based tracking, a tracking scheme that takes advantage of a DNS-based cloaking technique to evade tracking countermeasures. 
Using HTTP archive data and a novel method, we performed a longitudinal analysis of the CNAME-based tracking ecosystem using crawl data of 5.6 million web pages. Our findings show that unlike other trackers with similar scale, CNAME-based trackers are becoming increasingly popular and are mostly used to supplement typical third-party tracking services. We evaluated the privacy and security threats that are caused by including CNAME trackers in a same-site context. Through manual analysis, we found that sensitive information such as email addresses and authentication cookies leak to CNAME trackers on sites where users can create accounts. Furthermore, we pref- in fact, I didn't mention this, but in their report, they actually they took a handful of these sites where you can create an account. They created accounts. They, tr- they tracked and verified the leakage. They used the, leech, the leaked authentication tokens to impersonate themselves, and it all worked. So this is not a theoretical problem. This is a, and this is, remember, 10% of the top 10,000 websites are doing this now. It, it's just it's so it's just, amazing. It's just <sighs> horrible, horrible. Yeah, horrible. So wow. what we have is a real mess. Um, you know, no, no form of explicit tracking was ever designed into our use of the web. It happened as an unintended consequence of, of single advertising services having appearances on multiple hosting websites. And those providers were allowed to set cookies in our browsers, just like their originally intended first-party cousins. You know, I would argue we should have stopped it then. We should have just said no. But the trouble was... This tracking was effectively invisible. Users didn't see it. It went completely unseen by the public. And it wasn't, you know, so it, um, uh, it wasn't the public's responsibility to stop it. I would argue it was technologists' job to say no because it was the technologists who were abusing this technology. But, of course, those wearing white hats didn't say anything. We, no one said no. Then when an awareness began to emerge and third-party cookies were being threatened and sometimes disabled or deleted, browser fingerprinting emerged as a means for allowing what had grown into a tracking industry to retain its grip on our browsers and on us. Since fingerprinting was more difficult to defend than cookies, it received a stronger pushback from browser vendors who didn't like the idea that cookies were being bypassed as a means of tracking their users and that this kind of slimy fingerprinting was going on behind the scenes. And now we have what is perhaps the ultimate abuse in tracking technology. Thanks to explicit collusion among a growing number of websites Third parties, those same tracking third parties and analytics firms are being allowed to receive a website's cookies apparently without the website knowing or caring. Our logged in session authentication cookies are being received by third party tracking entities 
with whom users have no relationship and with whom they would surely refuse to share their logon session and various other possibly personal details if they were made aware of what the technology they are using was doing behind their backs. But once again, end users have no idea. They just use this and they assume that people who do know are going to do something. That you know They're being protected by people who are going to be responsible. This has been going on for years and has been growing slowly and it needs to be fixed. You know, as with the original abuse of third-party cookies, where all this began, it cannot be the responsibility of those who do not understand this to say no. It's got to be those of us who do understand this to push back in every way possible. So I am so glad that this research has shined a bright light on this next generation of tracking. Uh, it needs to be shut down immediately. But as I said, it's it takes those who are technologically savvy in the web industry uh, to make it happen, uh, you know, the sooner the better. Yeah, it's amazing. But that, I think that this is the, the, the cat and mouse battle between tracking companies and advertising uh, companies and ad tech companies and uh, users who just reasonably say, don't track me, bro. And uh, they're going to they're going to pull out all the stops, including, uh, you know, posing as a first party site. Yeah, it's going to take legislation. Uh, that's the only thing that can happen is that we just have to say, sorry, uh, we're, you just can't track people. I mean, well, imagine awareness right is good now because the market can respond. The market can. I mean, I want to know what these top 10 sites are so yeah, we can say 10 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Top one there. So 1000 of the top 10,000 sites are doing this. So, you know, if if those are well-known sites, and I think they probably are, um, those names need to be revealed. Yep. So that we can say something, because that's how that's how you you know, that's not OK. They think they're getting away with it because no one will ever notice. Right. Exactly. Well, now we know. Yeah. Uh, wow. I'm that, glad that I used NextDNS. <laughs> That's all I can say in uBlock Origin. Uh, that, that would have been yeah. a good name for this podcast, Leo. Wow. Well, now we know. Well, now, so now you know the rest <laughs> well, of the now story. We know. <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty much every podcast with Steve Gibson. It's a great informative thing, and I'm glad you're here to hear it. Uh, and tell your friends, you know, uh, if they're smart enough to understand what we just said anyway. <laughs> I know some people maybe uh, this would go, but uh, most people. That's the problem is this stuff is uh, deep. Yeah, uh, we, we should mention next DNS. I mean, because I if that. your DNS, your, if the people you are sending those queries to are on the ball, then the, it's, you know, they're the ones that will be asking example.com for the value of this C name. They will see that the that it is a domain that is a tracking domain and they'll just say, yep. oops, sorry. And it's my guess that if Quad Nines and Cloudflare and the others don't already protect against this, they could. And I imagine yep. they'd be implementing that pretty quickly. I'm just pleased. It's nextdns.io. It's free for the first 300,000 queries, but what happens is you get to that number pretty quickly because you put it on everything. I have it's, it's running. Oh, God. On my in, in, in this day and age, 300,000 queries <laughs> is like lunch. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So um, I buy it, but it's not. It's like, 
two bucks a month or something. It's fairly inexpensive. And boy, is it well worth it. It really, it does a whole lot more than that. A lot of security stuff. NextDNS.io. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. And that's where you'll find so many great things like this show, 16 kilobit audio versions for the bandwidth impaired, full human written transcripts that are great to read along while you listen. You can also use them for searching. And of course, the 64 kilobit audio all at GRC.com. While you're there, Pick up Spinrite system uh, 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 release six is current, but as you can see, Steve's working pretty darn hard to get six point one out the door. So uh, buy version six now; you'll get six point one free when it's available. You also get to participate in the early testing and so forth. So it's a good yep. it's a good thing, and everybody needs Spinrite. Uh, Shields up there, lots of other stuff for free. He's a very generous soul. Um, I uh, have copies of the show as well, or we do. There is no I in twit. Actually, there is. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, it, but it's a lowercase I. It's a lowercase I. It's just a humble I, a little I. Uh, <laughs> it's at twit.tv slash SN. That's where you'll find audio and video, too, actually. There's also a YouTube channel you can watch dedicated to security now. What else? Uh, you can subscribe in your favorite podcast application. Simple enough, and that way you'll get it the minute it's available of a Tuesday afternoon. We do the show around 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 21.30 UTC. You can watch us stream it live if you like to watch the behind-the-scenes chit-chat at uh, twit.tv slash live. Watching live, chat live at irc.twit.tv. After the fact, our forums are at www.twit.community. No third-party tracking cookies involved, uh, as far as I know. <laughs> I guess it's possible, but uh, I'll check the C name real quick just to make sure. Uh, no, of course not. And uh, same thing uh, with our Mastodon instance. Everybody's saying, where's Steve? I said, it took me years to get Steve to use Twitter. Just relax, okay? We'll move him over to Mastodon in time. It's the federated open source version of Twitter. Uh, our Mastodon server, that's a federated server, is at twit.social and gives you access to all the other Mastodon servers as well. Twit.social. I'll see you in there. Thank you, Steve. Have a wonderful week. I'm glad you got your second Fauci ouchie. We wouldn't want to lose you. Nope. nope. Ready to go. Good. We'll see you Bring next week. Bring it on. On security now. Bye. We do appreciate you watching this show right here on the Twit Network. If you want to make sure you are up to date on all things iOS, tvOS, watchOS, HomePodOS, all the OSs from Apple, you've got to check out iOS Today. Rosemary Orchard, the incredible Rosemary Orchard, and myself talk each week about the news for iOS, the best apps and games, and so much more. You've got to check out the show and we do appreciate you for subscribing. Security now.